this special summer series of the Afternoon Light podcast, we're releasing the 10 presentations from our inaugural conference held on the 18th of November 2021. The conference theme was Menzies Early Years, Success, Failure, Resilience. In this episode, you will hear from public policy consultant, Dr. Scott Prasser, who presented on The Learning Leader, followed by the Menzies Research Centre Executive Director, Nick Cater, who presented on Forgotten People to Quiet Australians. So the theme of my talk is um, Menzies, the learning leader, and I've subtitled it um, Why Menzies Kept on Winning. So if you go to the next slide, please. The key themes is that there are many reasons for Menzies' success from 949-66. He had immense capabilities. He had bits of luck. The times are with him. Uh, the opposition was divided and they had um, variable quality leaders. But I also believe that what was really pivotal was his experiences in his first time as Prime Minister and the opposition years that followed. And Menzies learnt a lot from the failure, like all of us do. He also developed and showed considerable resilience. He built on his considerable talents. Uh, and I think throughout whole of Menzies' time in the second prime ministership, uh, he kept learning and he kept adapting. And it's not the full explanation, but I think it's a, a pretty important one. Uh, I think it's too easy to say Menzies won 16 years of office and seven elections just because of luck and because the opposition is divided. It's learning how to exploit those opportunities and also moving with the times that really show why Menzies was so successful. So if you go to the next slide, thanks. So I say that successful long-term leaders uh, and the most successful long-term leader in modern time is Angela Merkel from Germany is they learn from experiences. They don't get stuck in policy or political ruts. They develop personally uh, and they, re they retain their own style. They don't become identikit leaders uh, and they keep that their own particular style and approach. And they show self-awareness of their own flaws. And certainly Menzies quite early on knew some of his own flaws, which I'll talk about. And also they have this immense endurance to keep on when many of us would decide to um, give it away. So I think that's what I think makes for long-term leaders. Um, so I think very important. If you go to the next slide, thanks. So what's learning mean? To learn means to get knowledge of the subject um, by study or experience and being taught. And I've got my own little definition is its ability to adapt and change behaviour while acquiring new knowledge, not closing your mind to new experiences or new things happening, but also being able to relate things to different situations, not just living in the past, the good old days, and able to address those. That's what I think learning in politics is all about, because politics is totally unexpected and unpredictable. And if you don't have those abilities, I think you're going to be in trouble. So go to the next slide, thanks. So what I say about Menzies, 
Just think about Mendes, and you've already discussed this today. Mendes was a high flyer, uh, almost a superstar in a sense. He was a scholarship boy, outstanding legal counsel, went into state politics, minister almost immediately, um, attorney general, acting premier, attended, uh, attended premier's conferences. Uh, he was known to be a person of some immense capability. He arrived in Commonwealth Parliament, uh, immediately Attorney General, Deputy of the UAP pretty soon, uh, become the person who was going to succeed Lyons. The issue is only not, not if, but when. Um, and became Prime Minister in 1939 um, after really um, a, a brief time uh, at 44 years. So, and as Menzies later sort of recorded, there was not much precedent for this kind of advancement, uh, especially perhaps in those times. But he was perceived to be as aloof, arrogant, distant, uh, very disdainful of the country party, and there's reasons, family reasons for that, uh, and making fun of the country party in cabinet meetings and so on. So Menzies was really... Um, very much going to be a person who thought he he ought to be there. So go to the next slide, thanks. But this is a person who then goes through a number of big falls. Uh, you know, he's becomes leader. He only just wins the leadership of the UAP. He gets attacked by Page in Parliament over cowardness. Uh, the country party leaves the government. He leads a minority government. Um, uh, war is, breaks out. He walks straight into that situation. And as we've heard from Frank, uh, he couldn't form a national government. He was criticised, um, rightly or wrongly, as for leadership. Anne Henderson has got a different view on that. Um, and things come quite unstuck for Menzies. He becomes the first prime minister in Australian history at that point of time, who is removed by really a party coup. Though he resigned, he removed by a party coup. This must have been a terrific blow to a person of such ego and such capability. He then suffers the other indignation of um, the Prime Ministership goes to Fadden, uh, even though he's still leader of the UAP. Um, so this could have been quite frustrating. And then when the Fadden government falls after 40 days, uh, uh, Menzies is bypassed as leader of the opposition. It goes on to Fadden because he was, had been the prime minister. Um, what a blow that must have been to a person of Menzies' capabilities um, relative to how he would have perceived Artie Fadden. Uh, and it's at that point he goes to the back bench and uh, he has lots of debates about whether he should continue on in politics. I think the important thing to think about Menzies, Menzies had an option. Uh, he's not like some politicians um, who the best they might go into is a lobbying firm. Menzies could go back to the courts and be very successful and very wealthy. So there is some other option going on, but he decides to stay on. Then he forms the Liberal Party um, in 1944 uh, and he, he suffers an election loss in, in 46 election. It wasn't a big, a big success. And that's when you, people start to say, you know, you can't win with Menzies. Uh, Menzies 
So mentees must have been going through, am I in the right job? Am I doing the right thing? Um, what am I doing wrong here? Again, over and over again, he would have had the option of some other going back into the courts, maybe the court itself uh, and so on. So I think these are really significant uh, processes going on with Menzies. And I think um, we should not, re- not forget that um, Menzies was one, is one of the few prime ministers who lost the prime ministership and didn't lose, didn't leave government, didn't leave office, uh, uh, didn't leave parliament, but came back. The other one was Kevin Rudd, of course, who lost the prime ministership, stayed on. But the important thing about Menzies is that he was in opposition for eight years, from 1941 to 1949. Kevin was foreign affairs minister for a time and then lost that for a few months before he came back as prime minister. Menzies had a much harder time to get back in 1949. And I think this is what I'm trying to get across. This must have been where he really learnt a lot about himself, a lot about politics. Okay, next slide, thanks. So I'm going to outline what I think are four key learning areas which Menzies learnt from being in government and being in opposition and suffering some of the problems he had. And here they are. Uh, he learnt about travelling light to the lodge. Do not overpromise. Do avoid grand visions, if you like. He learnt politics as people, learning about people and party management. Uh, everyone knew Menzies had a lot of capabilities, but it's a way he did not get on with some people and uh, rough people up the wrong way. He learned about setting the agenda, uh, that conservatives had not to be afraid of change and leading into new policy areas. And Menzies also, from both his legal background, his education and his experience of state politics and federal politics, understood the political architecture, which I think a lot of other politicians, certainly in recent times, and certainly people like Whitlam could have learned a lot about um, had they taken a bit more time and particularly more notice what Menzies did. Okay, next slide. So I think what Menzies learned about tra- by travelling light to the lodge, Menzies did not have a born-to-rule view of the world or of, that some people of that political party had at that time. He knew that you had to fight to rule. He knew that you had to uh, come up with policies that met people's needs. Uh, he avoided visionary or overpromises. Uh, he avoided things that I call recreational issues that might, might appease or appeal to certain groups. He addressed the basic concrete issues. He's forgotten people's speeches are all about those things, the home and education and family and so on. He really was zeroing in on what mattered to people. And as policies that I'll talk about will highlight that. Um, He understood that, you know, he he didn't go to elections with massive programs. And he once said in one election telecast, you know what we stand for. We stand for good, stable government. You know our policies because you see the economic growth around you. You see the low interest rates and so on. Um, And also he... He talked about his leadership. What he learned was 
responsible leadership, not crusade leadership, leadership that was responsible to a range of issues at different times. I think Mendes learnt uh, from what the Labor Party was doing. Uh, he had learnt from uh, predecessors in the UAP uh, and the Nationalist Party, Bruce in particular. He learnt about how far to go and what to carry with and what was of interest to the average person. The next thing, next slide, thanks. Uh, Menzies, uh, politics is people, learning about people and party management. I've got a quote here from Professor Mackenzie, a, a British um, political scientist. When appointed, the leader leads the party follows, except where the party decides not to follow, then the leader ceases to be leader. Um, in other words, the leader's got to take his party with him. And uh, Mr Turnbull didn't understand that. John Gray Gorton didn't understand that. Um, I think, and Howard got to understand that, uh, and and also Abbott probably in that category. Uh, it's no use. Leadership is not by command. It's it's by ensuring that you are able to accommodate your party and bring them with you. And I think Menzies operated on two levels. Within his own party, he'd learned the people who were had been against him. He learned to forgive them. They got ministerial posts and they got overseas posts. Um, he learned when to promote and when not to promote and when to sack and not to sack. There was not massive sackings of portfolios of people. He put up with Billy McMahon, as we all know, though he knew McMahon was sometimes leaking. Um, he had McMahon in. He knew how far to push things. Um, he, he moved from becoming an arrogant figure to becoming, within the party, a father figure. Uh, and a person that people uh, could approach and discuss and hear his stories and so on. I think these are really important attributes, and I think they only came about because of what he went through from 941 to 949. Then there's the issue of the country party. You know, it means his father had lost his seat in the state parliament, Victoria, to a country party. Uh, Menzies made speeches very critical of the special deals for the country party. Uh, Menzies was... Uh, treated uh, badly by the country party who um, um, uh, moved uh, emotions against him and sat away from him. He had the attack by Earl Page. Um, he had the Artie Fadden issue I've discussed about. Um, and he moved from taunting the country party to accepting them. To manage coalition government, you need the country party to form a government. And he got to understand that. And um, Brian Costa once said about Menzies, Menzies was too overindulgent with the country party uh, on policy issues and on uh, redistribution issues and so on, which is probably true. But just remember, in the first more or less budget of the Menzies government, 949, 51-52, um, there was problems with the budget. Fadden wouldn't accept the advice of Treasury uh, and, and, and almost threatened to end the coalition. Menzies softened on that approach and kept the coalition together. And that's, I think, a terrific learning thing that Menzies learned about himself and about managing the coalition. And when Liberal leaders don't manage the coalition, uh, they're in trouble. And you see what happens um, over and over again when that happens. Next slide, thanks. Thirdly, um, 
Menzies learnt that, um, yes, you can get into government by attacking the government of the day and the opposition to some extent, but you've got to do something a bit more than that. Um, and I think it's really important everyone should read Menzies' forgotten speech, the speech he made when he opened the 944 conference of the Liberal Party, where he outlined eight major criticisms of the United Australia Party. Uh, and one of them was, you know, there can't be a party of reaction. Uh, there's got to be a mass political party. Uh, it's got to be a party where people feel that they uh, have input into it. Um, and you've got to have policies for the future. There's no doubt that Menzies' policies were the future. And I think some people misconstrue the, this law, the loyalty to the, to, the, to the Crown and so on and so forth. Uh, yet under Menzies' time, uh, we had massive migration, massive change, and I think he provided a sense of stability for that. So um, Menzies always had a broad-based approach. He largely resisted extreme measures, except maybe the Communist Party ban, but in the context of the time, maybe different. Uh, he was pragmatic and incremental uh, about, about um, uh, public ownership, public enterprises, to airline policy. Um, but throughout Menzies' period, it was a modernising uh, period with, with not excessive reform or change. Uh, he picked on some really important things. Um, he, he, against the, the trend of the time, nationalisation of bits of the economy, he went on home ownership rather than public housing. Um, he, he did make big strides in education, university education in particular, after he won the 55 election, which was very pivotal to him. He, he, although a federalist, he accepted that there were roles for the Commonwealth government, um, which he was willing to, to push. So he was flexible um, and kept, in many ways, uh, off-putting the opposition. He made the ALP, uh, to me, he made the ALP look um, sometimes... Um, out of date um, and doctrinaire. And I think that was um, an important thing. Uh, so I think that's rather interesting what he, what he did in those areas. Um, and also I think what's interesting, uh, again, over and over again, when he had some near misses like the 61 election, um, he took remedial action. Uh, and some say he took some of the policies uh, from the Labor Party, partly he did. He also started to tackle the state aid issue and education. Um, the other thing that happened in that period um, was that Britain was going to join the European Union, European Common Market at the time, um, and Jack McEwen, country party leader, was pretty adamant that Australia had to get into the act. And, and Menzies did galvanise himself into some action uh, and went to Britain um, with McEwen. So Menzies was constantly moving and I think he, he did think about uh, how he could off-put the ALP in these, in these times. So quite interesting. Okay, next one, thanks. The other thing uh, I think Menzies learnt was understanding the political agenda, uh, architecture of Australia 
Um, yes, he had great education, professional understanding, and so on. Um, and in Australia, you're going to have to manage the federal state relations and the state premiers. And you can argue whether the current prime minister is doing that well or not doing it well. Um, that's up to you to make that decision. But he avoided a crash through or crash approach. Now, Whitlam in his um, 1972 election speech sort of talks about Menzies and the University Commission. And had Whitlam not been antagonised the state premiers as much as he did, and they're the ones who really provide the seeds of his defeat by their appointments to the Senate, um, he could have learnt a lot. So Menzies knew how far to push the system in a sense. The other interesting thing about Menzies was he used every different type of election. We had double dissolutions, we had half-cent elections, we had uh, early elections, um, and um, he, he was a bit of a risk-taker. Uh, I think now he did that and exported the, the, the availability of the electoral mechanism to his advantage. Uh, he'd been around, he knew how it all worked. Uh, um, he overcame um, the problems of the Senate, which the ALP had changed the rules in 1948, I believe, and I think most commentators believe, to uh, basically obstruct uh, a, a possible Menzies government coming in. Um, and he learned to manage those processes uh, extremely well. So I think that they, that's what this, all these factors, all these different factors, um, I believe, partly he had these capabilities, but partly he had seen how things operated at both state and federal level and learnt about how to use these, these different aspects effectively. And perhaps the most important thing he learned about the political architecture, in our system of government, a political party is really absolutely essential. And the non-Labor side of politics had had different political parties. The ALP had splits in their parties, but they still came back to the core ALP. The non-Labor side of politics had different versions of their parties, which often fell apart. And he also understood that, you know, organisationally, financially, um, uh, the membership base and so on, you need a proper mass political party to be an effective long-term leader. And he saw what happened to the UAP uh, after, 1940, after 1943 election. Uh, and therefore, um, I think his greatest thing he brought to the non-Labour side of politics was actually forming the Liberal Party uh, and making it such a successful political organisation that it's become. And again, I remind people, try and read Menzies' forgotten speech of 944. Okay, just to sort of um, come to wrapping it up, I'll move to the next slide, thanks. So... Why was Menzies so successful? My thesis is it's, yes, a person of immense capabilities, but also a person who learned to build on them and also to modify some of his behaviours uh, and some of his um, sharper points, if you like. Menzies... Um, was was certainly highly regarded. No one underestimated Menzies, but Menzies has never been properly understood. Um, 
in a sense. He, he, they've, they've, people have often misunderstood um, that he was just uh, an old conservative, and that was not Menzies at all. Uh, Menzies understood what constitutes political success. It's not visions, but daily needs of the electorate. Uh, he, he knew what, what counts in the home, um, what counts in the family. They are very important things. Uh, and delivering stable government was very important. Stable government doesn't mean non-active government. That's a different, that's a different game. So I think that's really important of what constitutes success um, and how far you can push the system, how far you can modify things. The other thing about Menzies was um, he never lost his nerve. Uh, this is what I, I sort of quite like about leaders, great leaders, whether they're generals or they're political leaders. Um, in 1939, um, he only just won the leadership of the UAP. Um, he was facing opposition from the country party. He didn't lose his nerve. He still went ahead. Um, when Page at first didn't want to stand down, he didn't lose his nerve. He didn't give in and let Page stay on as Prime Minister. Um, he kept on. In 1940, uh, the election, uh, government, he, he loses three, three important colleagues. The election doesn't go as well. He doesn't lose his nerve. Um, he, he stays it. Um, now, you might say he lost his nerve in 41 when he decided to resign. Uh, but maybe he was bound to the inevitable. But he, again, he doesn't give up. He doesn't go away. Um, uh, yes, he's, he's upset and angry. He's upset Fadden has made the opposition leader. He's upset that Billy Hughes has led the UAP. Uh, but he waits his time. And in 943, as we all know, he comes back invited. It's like John Howard came back invited. In 946, election, not a success, but again, doesn't lose his nerve. Uh, he spends his time going to America, writing for uh, newspapers, studying the American election, picking up on television, uh, becoming a true professional, um, if you like, uh, not an amateur, like so many of his predecessors had been, perhaps. Um, and then 51 and referendum, uh, uh, failed, but again, he doesn't. He doesn't uh, lose his nerve. He didn't have another referendum, of course. Maybe he learned from that, and uh, and so on. Sixty-one near loss, um, and if you compare to other leaders who've had such near losses, um, then you can see how differently Menzies behaved. Menzies just got on with it and acted as if he had a big majority, and started moving on to policies, state aid issues and European Union. And what's more, Menzies learnt right to the end when to go. You will now hear from Menzies Research Centre Executive Director Nick Cater, who presented on Forgotten People to Quiet Australians. Just on indulgence, uh, Madam Speaker, um, I just would like to begin by thanking you and everybody here at the Robert Menzies Institute for organising such a magnificent opening event um, they're just the intellectual standard diversity of thought, which I think has been terrific. It's not sometimes what you expect to find on a university campus, but uh, it's good to see anyway. Um, 
And just to see this thing come to fruition, I was first in this room, I suppose, about five years ago when we were in the early stages of talking to Melbourne University about incorporating the Robert Menzies Institute as part of the renovations of the quad. It was quite different then. There were three buildings. This was divided up in three parts, and there were three floors of the building. They put an extra one in, you know, I think, in the 1960s, not very well, and uh, part of the renovations was restored to this uh, original condition. And to me, it, it's a sort of goosebumps moment because this is the room in which, when it was an original law library, in which Robert Menzies would have studied um, a little over a century ago. Um, you know, his career began here in a sense that he discovered his passion for public life as a student here. And of course, his public life ended here more than half a century later as uh, Chancellor. So it's a real thrill to be here. Uh, and thanks to the board of the uh, Institute, thanks, of course, to uh, Vice-Chancellor uh, Duncan Maskell and his predecessor, uh, Glyn Davis, who was such a good supporter, and, uh, of course, um, the Chancellor, Alan Meyer, who's been a great supporter of this project. But it's good to see it eventually underway. And we can get down to the business of the Robert Menzies Institute now, which is really to uh, not just talk about the legacy of Menzies as a historical um, exhibit or a historical uh, study, but the philosophy behind it, as David began, I think, so aptly today, pointing out that the what is yet to be fully explored, although David does it magnificently in his four, soon to be five volume work on Australian liberalism, the ideas and the fact that ideas matter. So it's with that in mind that I come to look at the forgotten people speech and the forgotten people and their successors uh, and Menzies' influence on everything I think that's happened in Australia since, uh, that his legacy is still embedded in our DNA and uh, the way we conduct our affairs. And, uh, and the countries are vast, vastly different, I will, I, will, um, I will put to you, than it would have been without him. Uh, he was a consequential figure, a consequential because of his ideas. Um, it's very much, uh, you know, excuse me, Zach, this is an early draft of the wonderful chapter I intend to present to you, but, but part of the benefit here of these sort of events, of course, is you can... We can get feedback and um, you know things I haven't perhaps haven't got right or need to go back and look at. I welcome your suggestions. Um, so back to Robert Menzies and in his final year at Wesley College, his uh, flair for language was recognised with a prize for original poetry uh, on the subject of heritage and heroism. He was presented with a 1906 edition of the works of Alfred Lord Tennyson, uh, which now sits just across the road in the Robert Menzies collection in the Bailey Library. It's inscribed to Robert Menzies with best wishes for a successful career. I think that sort of came off. And it's dated June the 3rd, 1913. In the margin adjacent to the closing lines of the poem Ulysses, to strive, to seek, to find and not to yield, Menzies has put a pencil jotting, a reference to Captain Scott. News of uh, the death of Captain Robert Scott Faulkner uh, finally hit Australia in February 1913, almost a year after his death as he was uh, 
after his team had reached uh, the, the South Pole and then perished in a blizzard. His heroic, his heroic endeavour became a sort of metaphor, an exemplar, exemplar for the times of personal endeavour and grit and strong moral character. Almost three decades later, uh, as Australia was fighting for its, its survival in the Pacific War, Tennyson's spirited exhortation reappeared without attribution, probably because it didn't need it at that time, people would have recognised it, towards the end of a radio talk some 30 minutes long that was broadcast live from the studios of 2U in Sydney and relayed to the station's affiliates in Melbourne and Brisbane. Menzies Forgotten People radio talk was delivered on Friday, May the 2nd, 1942 at 9.15pm as Australia faced the most dangerous moment uh, in its history. Three months earlier, an estimated uh, 243 people had perished in the attack on Darwin. Two weeks after the radio talk, Japanese submarines would be entering Sydney Harbour and firing torpedoes at ships at anchor. But the appeal for steadfast determination, for which uh, Menzies evokes the words of Tennyson, is not in relation to, it's not a rallying cry uh, to war. It's instead uh, something he evokes as he talks about his post-war manifestation, man manifesto, sorry, uh, in which enterprise and moral endeavour would be the key to prosperity. The 38 issue essays in, that comprise the Forgotten People radio talk were broadcast between May 1942 and November to an appreciative audience, quite a large audience. Uh, they asserted the principles of Australian liberalism, individual freedom, equal dignity, parity of opportunity, personal and community responsibility, the rule of law, constitutional parliamentary governance, economic prosperity, and progress that would be driven by private enterprise motivated by reward for effort. Together, uh, the talks form a succinct summary of the political philosophy that shaped post-war Australia and remains, as I say, the default position for political debate to this day. Of the many um, articulate defences for classical liberalism in the English language, uh, in the latter half of the 20th century, few spoke more potently or directly to the lives of ordinary people than Menzies. The successful application of the philosophy outlined in the Forgotten People series uh, set the terms for Menzies' seven years, uh, seven terms in government, and his testimony to the power of ideas. The year 1942 is a significant one in Australian history, arguably the most significant as Dr. Brendan Nelson, the former director of the War Memorial, has observed. It was the year of the pivotal naval battle or battles in the Pacific that decided the course of the war and protected Australia's sovereign territory. Uh, it was the year through that, uh, that defence of, of uh, the Pacific that we forged our alliance with the United States, later to be formalised in the ANZUS Treaty. But it was significant, too, in the drawing of the battle lines of ideas between competing ideas about the nation-building path that Australia would follow after the war. It would take another seven years and two federal elections to decide the victor in that contest, 
1949 election. But there were two seminal contributions in 1942 that laid the intellectual groundwork for the debate that was to follow. Both contributions attempted to chart a course to a prosperous and more just future once the war had been won. But the means to achieve that end were diametrically opposed. The first was Menzies' Forgotten People, republished as a booklet by Melbourne publisher Robertson and Mullins soon after it was delivered and therefore getting quite wide circulation even before it was republished a year later in 1943 in the the collective collected edition of all 38 radio talks uh, given by Menzies. The series encompassed a range of topics, inflation, censorship, freedom, the alliance with the US, the nature of democracy and the drink problem, uh, something I think has still not been resolved, incidentally. But all of the speeches elaborated on this consistent philosophical argument that individualism was more effective and more uh, and a more human way to organise uh, our society than collectivism. The second contribution to that debate uh, was the Beveridge Report, which was published in London on December the 1st and was soon circulating in Australia. Indeed, uh, there was much pre-publicity. The discussion of the contents was was uh, was much looked forward to uh, in the Australian context. It had been commissioned by a Labour minister in the uh, coalition, the wartime coalition that Menzies, uh, that, sorry, Churchill assembled, um, Arthur Greenwood, and he'd simply asked Beveridge to go away and conduct a survey of existing national schemes of social insurance and make recommendations as to how they might be improved. improved. But Beveridge, in a, a classic example of Mission Creek, went a good deal further. He took it upon himself to, perhaps with the encouragement of some of the Labour members of that Churchill coalition, to expand his brief, to to deliver a comprehensive blueprint for overcoming the five giant evils of idleness, ignorance, disease, squalor and want, and he'd do so by the construction of a massive edifice known as the welfare state. Beveridge's flair for self-publicity meant that it had wide uh, reach and... uh, it had a modern technocratic tone to it that made everything else that went before so sound old-fashioned. In substance, however, it was predicated on a familiar utopian vision for a more equal, less competitive society in which the state assumed responsibility for the allocation of capital and scarce resources and would iron out the supposed defects of capitalism by pooling risk. Uh, the notion that science could be conscripted to, to design a better society gain currency amongst a generation who experienced the shock of the Great Depression and were now engaged in a total war in which individual liberties were necessarily surrendered in favour of a large shared cause. State organisation in the pursuit of victory in war was proving successful and it engendered confidence that they could use the same technocratic expertise to plan a better future after the war. Beveridge Report became a bestseller within a week of, of, uh, of being released. And the press newspaper reports in Britain were soon referring to the Beveridge Report simply as the plan, with a capital P. He had rock star status. Um, it was, uh, and his, his report was becoming synonymous for a sort of modern technocratic way forward, which was 
broadly assumed amongst the intelligentsia to be a better way. Menzies' manifesto uh, for post-war Australia, however, encapsulated in the Forgotten People's speech, could not rightly be described as a plan at all. It was more accurately an application of, of classical liberal philosophy, in essence, to the moral and political challenges of its day. It held that nation building would be met best accomplished not by technocrats, by central planners, but by empowering free individuals to pursue their own ends, to take risks. But the emphasis in forgotten people um, is prim principally moral rather than economic. I think in recent decades, perhaps after Milton Friedman and, and others, we've come to think of liberalism in Australia and, and the rest of the world as being having an, essentially an economic purpose to, uh, to clear up the debt and deficit left by, by Labour parties and to get on and run the, get the country efficiently. But there's very little economics in Menzies' Forgotten People. It's, it's, it's a moral tract, principally, an assertion of the equal worth of every individual. And his principal criticism of planned societies is not an economic one. That would come later and, and it would be, become much clearer after the publication of Hayek's the Road to Serfdom in 1944. Again, Menzies' copy is in the library across the road and heavily underlined, and I'm dying for the COVID restrictions to get lifted so that I can get in, have a look at what he has actually underlined. But Menzies' criticism was simply that um, totalitarian or autocratic societies, first of all, uh, did not respect human dignity, and secondly, that they simply don't work. They were less efficient at meeting human needs, although he doesn't go into the details of why. The text of the Forgotten People speech has got a real literary quality to it. In fact, I, I've probably read it, I don't know, I've lost count of the number of times, no doubt Judith has too, and it, every time you return to it, it, it rewards you with, with new insights. It's just that kind of uh, text. It has allusions to poetry of Robin, Robert Burns, as I mentioned, uh, or Robert Burns, uh, sorry, Tennyson, as I mentioned, and Robert Burns and Richard Lovelace, as well as Tennyson, together with allusions to the classics and the Bible. It portrays, it portrays Menzies' heritage in his, his rich, in his, of a Presbyterian father and a Methodist mother that David spoke of earlier. Uh, and it was a text for a man for whom the Christian faith was the natural and unself-conscious organising principle for both family and community. He writes that we, or he speaks, that we are all as human souls of like value cannot be denied, that each of us should have his chance, is and must be the great objective of political and social policy. Menzies qualifies his statement, however, to reject the idea of equality of outcomes and acknowledge, and also acknowledges that one's chance in life can be restricted by the lottery of birth, but beyond that, it's up to every individual uh, to take whatever talents he may have and make the best of them. Menzies uh, says, to say that the industrious and intelligent son of a self-sacrificing and self-saving and forward-looking parents has the same social deserts and even material needs the dull offspring of a stupid and improvident parents is absurd. I think we all agree with that. Um, the greatest lottery you win in life is to pick good parents. Indeed, said Menzies, of course, the, the, the 
existence of inequality is itself evidence of a dynamic society. Frugal people who strive for and obtain the margin above these materially necessary things are the whole foundation of a really active and developing life. So he set himself up in clear opposition to the aims of the Beveridge Report and the aims of, of, of the, uh, the socialists more generally to produce a more equal society, a society of more equal outcomes. Menzies, of course, desire, do, calls for a lighter touch from government uh, and a free economy, uh, in right, but, uh, and writes about the unintended uh, consequences and perverse influence of regulation and taxes. He speaks about the illogicality, for instance, of taxing income from personal savings as if it possessed a somewhat discreditable character. The effect of penalising self-provision in retirement uh, was to push people towards universal pensions and uh, social welfare programmes. It was to, to Menzies to discourage or penalise thrift is to encourage dependence on the state. Crucially, I think in Menzies' speech, he... he foreshadows the post-war reforms to housing policy and education, but principally housing. Uh, indeed, the open section of his speech is given, to a is given over to a lyrical description of home life. It emphasises the social, economic and indeed moral value of home ownership. He speaks of the home as the foundation of sanity and sobriety, which determines the health of society of a whole. whole. The act of saving for one's own home he says, is a concrete expression of the habits of frugality and saving, which he considered so virtuous. Your advanced socialist may rave against private property even while he acquires it, but one of the best instincts in us is that which induces us to have one little piece of earth with a house and garden which is ours. If, you, um, if it seems a little bit overdone uh, to modern ears, um, it's probably because the battle, that the contest that he was fighting has been won. But he does uh, emphasise it quite a lot. Indeed, the word home, this is, um, these were quite popular a few years ago. They've fallen out of fashion, this idea of a word map. This is the frequency of words in the Forgotten People's Speech uh, represented in size. You'll see homes is large. It, it, home is separate, so singular. Put the two together and, and they become the... the um, the second most common noun in the entire speech. 21 times in the speech he mentions either home or homes and, and then he adds the word house for good effect on three occasions. It was, uh, it was delivered, of course, against the background of tightening a tightening housing market exacerbated by wartime shortage of labour and building materials, a shortage that would become acute by the end of the decade, by 1949, uh, when Menzies fought uh, the election at which he was finally victorious. There's also a lot of social concern around about the quality of housing stock and the provision of basic amenities. Uh, there was a, a lot of talk about demolishing slums uh, in the inner city. Ironically, those same slums uh, now change hands for a lot of money to the uh, sons and daughters of the same people that were arguing they should be demolished after the war. Um, Labour was very slow, incidentally, at a federal level to respond to the housing issue. I believe David may fill me in on this, but I note that uh, in the 1943 election speech, uh, it was not featured uh, uh, by Curtin. It did not feature heavily. 
And in the 1946 uh, election address, the, the keynote election address by Ben Chifley, he didn't mention it once. Menzies, however, in his 46 uh, address and in 49, made it a big part of his speech. Uh, Labour, I think, perhaps uh, um, uh, considered it to be a state matter, as indeed it was, but Menzies recognised that the, the Commonwealth Government, through the uh, grants and provisions it, it would offer the states, could actually have a, quite an influence. Uh, by 49, when, when uh, Chifley catches up and starts talking about housing, it's very much in terms of large housing schemes, uh, many of which would be social housing projects, some of which would be private housing, but even that private housing would be in a, a planned and uh, manner dedicated by the state. It wasn't simply a case of picking a quadrate of block and building your own home. But Menzies pledged to allege the, uh, to amend the Commonwealth State's housing agreement, quote, so to permit and aid little capitalists to own their own homes. I rather like that. Now, the effect of Menzies' policies over the next 16 years is there on the record. Uh, home ownership in Australia went from 50% to 70% in just 16 years. And it led to the growth of the suburbia that so enraged the intelligentsia. Uh, people like Ronald Boyd and, and Donald Horne in the 1960s and inspired the creation of Australia's greatest comic figure, Dame Edna Everidge. Uh, Everidge, of course, being um, an Australian pronouncement of the word average, Dame Edna Everidge, who lived down the road here in Mooney Ponds. I was thinking of entitling this speech, by the way, Everidge versus Beverage, but I'll save that for the later incarnation because Dame Edna, for all her sort of comic genius, does in many ways epitomise the sort of suburbia that Menzies created, a woman who wants, who's above her station. She feels she deserves better, but then ordinary people could feel that in the 60s because they had their own house, they had their own car, uh, much to the irritation of, of many um, on the left who still believed in the great communist ideals and believed that these things like cars and homes were there to pamper the working class so they wouldn't revolt. Uh, but that was, that was what Menzies created. Uh, the Forgotten People, uh, uh, well, I'm running out of time, Georgine. Tell me how long I've got. Then I'll move, I'll, move, I'll skip you, I'll skip, I'll skip on to the, I'll come to the, by all means, by all means. So the influence of these policies as we judge them nearly 80 years after that Forgotten People speech is profound. It, it set the, the tone for post-war labour as well as, Liberal governments. Um, I, I think that the economic deregulation of the Hawke and Keating administrations and indeed the, uh, the superannuation policy they introduced was at least Menzies would have recognised and approved of the intent, if not the actual shape of those policies. Uh, and they recognised, of course, in the superannuation the value of personal savings. Well, if you wanted to do a counterfactual history of, of, of Australia without Menzies. It's always hard, of course. This country was unique in its geography and demographics and its abundance of natural resources. But let's imagine roughly what Australia would be now be like if we'd taken the same course as Britain, for instance, which followed the beverage pram more or less uh, to the letter for 34 years, uh, from the election of the Clement Attlee government in 45 to the defeat of Callaghan in 79. 
would the nation be more or less prosperous? And would that prosperity be more even distributed or less? Well, for some evidence on that, I'll just close quickly with the latest Credit Suisse report on global wealth, which sets out, compares nations on these questions. Australia's got the fourth highest amount of personal wealth per capita, wonderful thing. Uh, but uh, the influence of Menzies' policy is more observable in the distribution of that wealth. So we rank behind Switzerland, United States and Hong Kong on, the, on mean wealth as a measure, but median wealth, of course, which more accurately says what people in the middle are worth rather than the extremes of wealth and poverty at the other end, uh, it, it is, is Australia comes top in terms of median wealth. And measured by the Gini coefficient, uh, uh, we're, we're relatively low. Re income is relatively redistributed by world standards. In the United States, 31% of wealth is held by 1% of the population. In Sweden, that great exemplar of the equal society, 35% of wealth is held by 1% of the population. In Australia, just 19.4%, which is very, very low by world standards. Um, so my argument is that and the nature of that wealth very quickly, 60% of Australian household wealth or, or personal wealth is, is, built, is tied into property, only 40% in equities, which would be your superannuation. And the housing element of that, the property element, is more equally distributed. Uh, so my thesis is that the benefits in terms of prosperity and the spread of that prosperity of Menzies' policy of focusing and empowering the forgotten people is manifest and real and is there in the data. And as we say at the Menzies Research Centre, in God we trust, everybody else bring data. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this special summer series of the Afternoon Light podcast featuring the presentations at our recent conference on Menzies' early years, success, failure and resilience. Today was the final episode in the special summer series featuring public policy consultant Dr Scott Prass's presentation on The Learning Leader, followed by the Menzies Research Centre Executive Director Nick Cater, whose presentation was on Forgotten People to Quiet Australians. Next week, we will resume our regular programming with a variety of guests from Australia and around the world talking about Menzies, his life, his legacy and the enduring values that touch us today. Thank you.